0: Well, let's dig into the comprehensive gospel and um, you can turn your Bibles to Mark 4, or excuse me, Mark 1, verse 14 and 15 is what we're going to base, uh, base our message off of today. And I want to uh, first pray and then we'll read the scripture and then we'll, we'll uh, dig in. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and God, you are holy, holy, holy. You are gracious and faithful and good to us. And yet sometimes we are foolish and feckless. And in your mercy, you, you love us dearly. We thank you for this great love exhibited in the gospel. And I pray now that you would help us to see. Uh, Father, oh, help us to see. Help us to see your word. Help us to hear your word. Give us ears to hear. And, of course, help us to embrace and apply this comprehensive gospel in Jesus name I pray amen amen all right mark chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 says this now after john had been taken into custody john the baptist jesus came into galilee preaching the gospel of god and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe in the gospel so I thought I would take this last Sunday of 2019 and remind us of the gospel we confess and the gospel that we proclaim. Um, and not because I'm assuming there is this significant deficiency in our fellowship uh, of understanding the gospel, because but because I think it's really good to check the foundation to make sure that it's secure lest the building collapse on all of us. <laughs> Uh, It'll be a shorter message, but hopefully one that will remain a challenge to us. That's my intention anyway. So we have covered quite a bit this year, just to give you a a cursory overview. Um, We finished the bulk of the Gospel of John. Uh, We started at the end of last year and then went into 2019 with the Gospel of John. Um, At Easter time, we um, met outside at the Hudson's and we worked through the fact that Christ the Bible says, was raised for our justification. We walked through the book of James, exploring the law of liberty and how it guides us for godly wisdom. Uh, We also talked about what it means to reconstruct the heart so that we have a proper theology of emotion, to have a proper understanding of emotion and how emotion is a good thing and not something we need to suppress and stuff, but something we need to, to have sanctified just like everything. Jordan remind us about the issue of forgiveness and its conditionality. Um, if you didn't catch that one, I highly recommend you go, go online and listen to that one. Um, we also, for good measure, threw in a sermon on vaccines <laughs> uh, in order to push back the status controls that we find in healthcare. And there will be more on that to come in 2020, Lord willing. That fight is not over, as we've already talked about this morning. Um, and also, we finished our, our year by having an eschatological Christmas, and uh, hopefully you did so, and are continuing to do so. Now, I, I tend to, uh, just to give you kind of a, uh, an insight into my mind, which is a scary place, uh, <laughs> I tend to approach preaching and teaching in our assembly here in what I hope is really a self-consciously balanced way. Um, we work through the Bible, a book of the Bible, and then we pause and usually tackle an important subject that may be pressing. Um, we go through another book of the Bible, and then we kind of come back and deal with another subject and so on and so forth. Uh, and I do this because I think the church is supposed to be balanced in its prophetic ministry. We should be engaged. Of course, that's our mission. It's right in the front of the bulletin in pressing the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life. We want to equip men and women and children to do that. That is that's our way of saying, well, that's our point. That's the Great Commission. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So we want to be engaged in those things. And we should also be engaged in caring for one another and taking care of our fellowship, um, which happens uh, quite a bit. And there's always opportunity for that. In fact, in 2018, I did a sermon series called One Another, where I really wanted us to think through those things because we are a young church going into our third year, two years old, and we, we're growing. We need to care for one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to be engaged with one another um, and dealing with the reality that is sometimes sin that can spill over into to every area in effective fellowship. We, we have to deal with those things in a godly way. And all of that's because, of course, we need healthy soldiers in the battle. <laughs> we're all in the battle. We need healthy soldiers. On the one hand, Uh, However, you have churches that are busy doing movie-themed preaching, which may or may not have its place. And on the other hand, you have pastors spending eight years preaching through the book of Romans. The problem with that is you never deal with contemporary issues. So there's a balance to be had. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can conclude that we need to see the church's prophetic task What I've called, and others, I borrowed it from Walter Brueggemann. But we need to have a a prophetic imagination. Um, We need to see the prophetic task as being this dovetail experience with all of life. We don't have to like be afraid of the social issues, or and, and we don't have to think, oh, that's a distraction from the gospel. No, actually, the gospel is for those things. So we don't have to like choose between those. It's a dovetail experience. And if the gospel is truly comprehensive, as I'm going to argue this morning, then we need to actually apply its comprehensiveness. Um, This requires that we are up to speed, as it were, on the issues that we face, be it medical freedom, the Second Amendment, uh, you know, nullification, (laughs) taxation, being theft, and so on and so forth. Consequently, having said that, if the church is doing its job, it will be salt and light, which is not a cute slogan to slap on a mug it's more than that salt provides the parameters for justice and judgment light provides an illuminated path for obedience and righteousness just i'm gonna say that again because usually the salt thing is just this cutesy thing oh we provide flavoring well actually salt is connected with judgment especially some key old testament passages if you wanted to ruin someone's, another nation's field, you dump salt all over it. It's judgment. Salt is judgment. Light is healing. Salt provides the parameters for justice and judgment. Light provides an illuminated path for obedience and righteousness, which means then that the church will not only care for its people, that needs to happen. The church needs to care for its own. Um, what does Paul say in Galatians 6? Let us. Um, let us do good to all, especially those of the household of faith, he says. You know, we do that through serving and giving, through strategic planning and so on. We need to care for our own, but it will also, the church, if it's doing its job, will rub up against the world in order to give it direction, the, the direction that it desperately needs. And that's what the pressing need is right now, I think, in our nation, is direction. People don't have answers. And here we are as confessing Christians with the Bible, with authoritative scripture, we have the answers. And we know our current humanist experiment, where we try to govern ourselves by what seems right and good to us in our own, uh, in our own eyes, is obviously flawed and failing. The bloated central government, federal and state, is doing what is the functional equivalent of drinking too much and running around the house in the dark. It needs help. It needs answers. And what we must do is offer those answers, but we offer those with a two-pronged approach. One is humility, and the other one is with assertiveness and boldness. Now, I, I picked this text in Mark chapter one because I find it astounding that these are the first words out of the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible that has red letters, those are the first red letters you see. They're the first words in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus speaks. Um, There's no birth story. We don't go to Mark for the Christmas story. We don't. There's no birth story. And unlike, um, John doesn't have this either, but we don't have a genealogy as well. Matthew and Luke have genealogies tracing the historical roots of why Jesus matters. He's from David. He's from Abraham. He's from Adam. He's from God. That sort of argument. In Mark, there's this brief quotation in the first couple of verses from Isaiah. Isaiah. And then there's this swift introduction of, to John the Baptist. We don't have any story of John the Baptist in Mark either. We know he's Jesus' cousin, he's six months older, and Elizabeth is his mom, and Mary is Jesus' mom. So we, we know that from other passages. But here, all of a sudden, we meet John the Baptist, and then we immediately meet Jesus at his baptism. As Now, this is why it's significant, so follow this as the new Moses bringing about a new and final exodus. Jesus goes from his baptism, and then the very next words, what do you see in your text? He goes into the wilderness. He goes goes from his baptism into the wilderness. Israel, think about it this way, Israel was brought out of Egypt through the waters of baptism at the Red Sea, and then spent time in the wilderness for their disobedience. Jesus goes backwards. He goes into the waters and then out into the wilderness. Jesus is going back to Egypt to get his people. And Egypt, of course, is a larger picture of Satan's sin and death. So the the journey of Israel out of Egypt, Jesus is going back. Hosea 11.1 is a prophecy. Out of Egypt I called my son. Mm -hmm. And that's connected with the birth of Jesus, which incidentally, Jesus in his birth had to escape to Egypt because of Herod who wanted him dead. So Jesus is, in his ministry, he's going back. He's retracing Israel. He's going back to get his people, his true Israel, the church of God. So just think of it that way. He's going back. And think about this for a moment, too. What might Jesus say to Pharaoh upon arriving to Egypt? What might he say? What would be his first words? Well, we have them right here in our text. He came into Galilee, where his ministry starts here in Mark, and he proclaims, "...the time is fulfilled." And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what does this mean? Uh, I'll give you my extended interpretation and translation. Uh, Affectionately called the JGV, the Jason Garwood version. So Jesus was essentially saying this. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase, and I'm pulling this from other scriptures and the historical context, just to give you an idea of the power of these two verses. Here's, Here's what Jesus is saying. Everything from the dawn of history is now rushing forward in this moment. The time is fulfilled. Everything, everything from Genesis 1 to this moment is rushing forward into me. Time, space, all of it now belongs to me. It was always mine, but I've come to put an end to the rebellion. What I'm doing in my ministry, Pharaoh, is bringing with me the rule and reign of God, what we call the kingdom of God. My father has always been the king of his kingdom. After all, the mutual love and fellowship I have with my father and my spirit has spilled over into this creation. I am the word who made all things, and I am here to take on the yoke of the kingdom by purchasing a people who will, in turn, transform the world. What I am doing begins now. It's happening as I speak, and your job is to repent, to turn away by changing your mind and thus your direction, And believe, put your faith, put your trust, put all your bag, all your eggs in this basket, this good news. That's what he's saying in two verses. That translation and interpretation offered here is found by piecing together the entire narrative of the Bible as it casts a vision for the renewal of all things, which we discussed last week. See, God desires to dwell with his people. That has always been the intention. But he doesn't, need a, he doesn't need concrete and rebar. okay? He doesn't need that. He doesn't need gold and he doesn't need silver. In fact, he doesn't need anything. Jesus Christ, in the gospel of the kingdom, has come to reclaim God's territory, space and time and history in order to bring about the fullness of God's glory on the earth. When we speak of a comprehensive gospel, these are the comprehensive things, the elements. When we speak of this gospel, in fact, we speak, when Jesus speaks of the gospel, we should say too, he does so, as indicated here in Mark, with an understanding and association with the kingdom of God. Jesus, the gospel isn't, well, Jesus died for me, which is a true proposition. And don't finish the sentence so that I can go to heaven. Also a true proposition. Those are aspects. Let's not be reductionistic. Let's take the wholeness of it the comprehensive nature of the gospel, those are elements of it. And I'm going to give you more elements later to build the vision, but let's take it all. Let's not take one piece because Jesus died for me so I could go to heaven has thus been translated into so I don't have to do a thing on earth. So the good news, this good news is comprehensive because the bad news is comprehensive. I almost should apologize to you for even throwing in an adjective in front of the gospel. The comprehensive gospel. It's like born again Christian. Is there any other thing? (laughs) So know that. I'm I'm apologizing. not, Not to insult your intelligence. It's comprehensive because the bad news is comprehensive as well, right? Sin has touched every area of man his mind, his heart, his emotions, his physical body, his environment, I got more, his plans, his pursuit of wealth, his organizing efforts, his love, his grace, his wrath, his mercy, man's desires, his purpose of, in relationships, his parenting, right parents, sins touched that, we were not perfect. Um, Sin has affected man's ability to empathize, his ability to govern himself, his ability to govern others, his charity, his virtue, his motivation, and all of his thinking and doing. Did I leave anything out? (laughs) Sin has encroached on every area of life. So why wouldn't we proclaim a gospel that touches every area of life? So, and this is delving into some of the things I, I... Uh, had done in in Zambia. We need to know, number one, the objective facts and truth of the gospel. What What are the objective facts of it? What does it tell us? Two, we need to know how those facts work themselves out, right? What is their purpose? Why does it matter that Jesus died for my sin? So we need to know not only that he died for my sin, for example, but we need to know why, And then three, we need to understand the qualitative nature of how the gospel is implemented in real time. Okay, so follow the train of thought. We need to know the facts. We need to know why the facts exist, what's their purpose, and then we need to know how they apply. If we're going to deal with the, the comprehensive nature of the gospel of the kingdom, we have to know those things. So... What is the objective, unvarnished truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God? I'm going to give you six categories to think about, and I'm going to go through them quick. But if you're writing, you can write them down. But the first category: Creator versus creation. When we think about the gospel, I'm, I'm giving these. Are, think of these like places to hang your hat in your mind. Creator versus creation. God is the sovereign covenant Lord. He is the creator. Man is the creature. Okay, that's clearly established in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Being the covenant Lord who has initiated all things, we thus need to know our place in relationship to him and know the calling that he has on our lives. Okay? And what is that calling? Number two, dominion. So we have creator and creation, those concepts. And by the way, all sin... All idolatry, all injustice stems from a misappropriation of the first point. If you don't have a proper theology of creator and creation, you mess everything up. Because what happens? The creation thinks it's going to be the creator. And that's what Paul says in Romans 1. They worship the created and not the creator. So we need to know our calling, and that's to dominion. We are called, according to Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28, We're told to fill the earth and subdue it, which means we are to make it productive and useful for the kingdom. Okay, that's what he told Adam and Eve. Work and keep the garden. Make the world productive. Make it suitable and useful for the kingdom. Adam was not told to create a shovel so that he could um, go on a killing spree and bury his own. (laughs) He was told to create a shovel so that he could eventually develop concrete and make buildings. He was to, he was, that was his calling to make it productive. And that has many facets to it. Individual purpose in the kingdom. We talk about this with our kids all the time. All of you need to have an individual perfect, uh, individual purpose for the kingdom. Some of it's finance, some of it's software, right? Some of it's um, preaching and teaching. Some of it's your job is to change diapers and raise children who will have pitchforks in their hand and torches when we need to call the magistrate to repentance. (laughs) Okay. That's your task. Some of you need to become medical doctors to fix the problems of medicine today. Some of you need to become teachers and, you know, utilize your gifts in various ways. I mean, there are callings upon each of us. We need strong, godly families and relationships. We need economic prosperity and honesty in business transactions. We need to repent of our view of money as though it not only were an idol, but something to avoid. We need it for the kingdom. It's useful for the kingdom. So we need to have that in place. Um, we need just weights and measures, speaking of money. Um, we need a civil government that upholds justice and righteousness when dealing with criminals. We need churches who are evangelizing, who are planting other churches and making disciples, things that we are trying to do here. Three. Another fact of the gospel, we have sin and salvation, sin and salvation. Man has rebelled against God. Therefore, he needs God in order to be restored by God from God for God. Think of it that way. Jesus Christ, we know, is the only Lord and Savior that can give man this salvation, dealing with sin fully and finally on the cross and through the resurrection, and blessing man with covenant status and freedom to carry out that purpose. Four, incarnation and ascension. Incarnation and ascension. It is not wrong for us to say, that one of the key aspects of the gospel is the incarnation and the, asc- and the ascension, including his life, his death, and resurrection. So incarnation, ascension, Jesus became a man in order to atone for sin. Jesus was raised as a true resurrected man and now sits on David's throne in the heavens, ruling and reigning, putting his enemies under his feet. Those are parts of the gospel. Five revelation and authority. Revelation and authority. God has revealed His perfect will to man in His Son and in His Word, which is the Holy Spirit-inspired, perfectly authoritative Holy Bible you have in your hands, and or as an app. (laughs) God has given us His laws and His Word in order to carry them out in obedience to every area of life, which means that any authority can only be a true authority to the degree that it aligns with the Bible. I mean, if there's, if there's not a question of authority today in our, in our world, I don't know what is. You know, you, you can't have a 10-round a, a magazine. On what authority? And where do, where do these people appeal to? Well, the state, because the state says so. The collective man. And we say, well, no, the Bible says I have permission to defend myself and my neighbor. In fact, I'm loving my neighbor well when I have an AR-15 with 30 rounds. See, this issue of authority is huge. God has revealed himself. He is authoritative. Jesus is authoritative. He has all authority. Jordan referenced that earlier, the Great Commission. And not only does he have all authority, he's given us his word, which is authoritative. Six, last element I want us to think about responsibility and judgment and you might think why do those go together let me explain responsibility and judgment man and I'm including all of you in this room in that is entirely responsible to God in every area of life and therefore is given God's complete and unending authority you need to know that you're responsible to God And you have his authority to the degree that you're willing to not only align yourself with the word of God, but align yourself in your speech, in your mind, in your emotions, at your job. You need to align that with the authority God has given you. And thus, (laughs) here's the scary part. Because what do we want in our world? Responsibility without accountability. We have not only responsibility before God, we are accountable to God. And in fact, when we mess up, what does God do? He disciplines those he loves. He blesses, he curses. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 14 verses. Verses 1-14 through 14 are all the blessings of the covenant. And it touches everything. Money, prosperity, etc. God will bless those efforts. And then verses 15-68 through 68 are all the curses. <laughs> so don't, don't, don't forsake that. So all men, women, and children. Children, I'm including you in this. And all nations are to respond positively to God's summons to obedience, to order the affairs of their lives in accordance to God's principles and God's commands and God's laws. That's responsibility, that's accountability. And that's judgment. See, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 2:15, we are to judge all things. We are to exercise proper judgment in the world. And when we do that, God can be expected to pour out His covenant blessings as we mature and as we work for His kingdom. So those are the facts of the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom. They are unchanging, they are irreducible, and they are uncompromising. Those six areas. We can't explain them away, wish them away, or ignore them, nor should we try. We cannot escape from the commands of Christ, nor should we want to. After all, God punishes all evildoers. Psalm 5, 5. I love what Cornelius Van Til said. He he likened it to the radio. The unbeliever has a radio and that every station, it screams of God. And he tries to turn the station, but he can't. Everyone is accountable to God. So, what is the purpose of these facts? Well, simply put, we must assert the gospel of the kingdom in the world. We must challenge every philosophy, every idea, every system of thought and action with Christ's gospel. Referenced earlier, what, what Jordan was saying. In, a, in other words, we weren't given the gospel to merely contemplate it from time to time. That, that's, a, uh, that's actually affected the Reformed world quite a bit. We think that the point of the gospel is just to think about it. And when you think about the gospel, then you're not thinking about sinful thoughts, and therefore you've won. Well, that's partly true. (laughs) But let's not be reductionistic. Let's think about the gospel to such a degree that it moves us to action. We're supposed to do something with it. And what's clear from the Bible is that the gospel does something in the world. It does something in the world. It doesn't just save souls for heaven. Why is it that Jesus didn't just die in heaven? He could have just died in heaven and saved the world, right? Well, no, he became a man, identified as a man. Became, he was a man in the fullness of flesh to redeem us. So the, the, it does something for heaven. It, breaks, it does something for the earth, rather, in heaven, but it breaks the bonds of institutional slavery and oppression, and it destroys systems and obstacles that go against the knowledge of Christ to echo the Apostle Paul. If it is the true gospel, and ultimately, it's an ultimate and authoritative gospel, and if it is a gospel whereby men and nations and institutions are ultimately judged, then we can conclude that it is a gospel that has to be boldly and uncompromisingly declared individually and nationally. Think about it. People are so... So put off by the law of God. But it's the very thing God will judge them at the end of history. The the standard of the gospel is the very thing that men will ultimately be accountable to. All people will face the throne room of God. They will face the judgment of God. And God's going to say, I gave you my son. You knew who I, you know, I, I put my image on you and you cursed at me. You shook your fist at me at every turn and you rebelled at me. You have violated my law completely. You don't have the atonement of my son. You will be in hell forever. So if that's true at the end of history, how much more true is it for history? So finally, how is it carried out? How is the gospel carried out? And I will say this, sheer hard work. Blood, sweat, tears. We still have Christians and brothers and sisters who are in places like the Middle East and Nigeria who are being martyred. The church in Iran is growing like crazy, but they're not without blood, sweat, and tears. Why should we? See, the church is called to be militant in our assault against these speculations and these philosophies and these strongholds go to, the, go to the George Mason campus and try to talk to a real life person who is a nihilist, who thinks that nothing matters. And then I say, well, why are you at school? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to learn. Why does that matter? It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, then you get in that train. But that's out there. These are philosophies and strongholds that have captured the minds of people. So we need people to see the sham that is man's law. We need people to be exposed to the riches of God's grace over against the chains of man's wrath. The battle for the hearts and minds of men is going to be fought in the trenches of injustice and systemic oppression. It isn't going to be fought primarily in our churches where we gather and sing and smile, though sometimes it's a fight to simply get Christians involved in these sort of things. It's going to be fought out there in business, in the streets, at the university, in our homes, in the civil government. That's where it's going to be. And it's going to be difficult, honestly. Pushing the antithesis is not without pushback. But we have a commander-in-chief who is good to us, who has given us what we need for life and for godliness. And therefore, instead of, instead of annotating the gospel to death, right, trying to explain it away so we don't have to be accountable to it or responsible to it, we need to drink it straight with no chaser and be willing to lay it all on the line. And what's happening in Virginia right now, we've already talked about it, but the, with the Second Amendment, it, the world is absolutely watching. Will the church rise up in 2020 and repent of our apathy of abortion? Repent of our idolatry of the state? I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. We pray that she does. And I pray that we would have a fresh wind and fresh fire of the Holy Spirit so that this, this comprehensive gospel we're talking about can be unashamedly proclaimed among the nations. So, children, before I pray here, Know that it's your task to be raised in this. Your job is to know God's Word, to excel at your reading and writing and math and all the things that you really may not love, but it's for His kingdom. Because someday you're going to be taking this fight over. You're in the ranks. You're in the barracks right now. We're training you. And we want you to take the torch into the future. Let's pray. Father, you have uh, exemplified your grace and mercy most vividly in Christ, his coming, his his life, his perfect life, his grace-filled life, and you have revealed it also in his death so that we could die in him, be buried with him, and be raised with him. And God, may the truth of our current reign with Christ the King be pervasive and be made known, and be taken seriously, that you have tasked us with this wonderful gospel, this comprehensive gospel that that really, really does actually work to heal the nations, to heal families, to heal individuals, to heal our children. God, you have given us what we need. I just pray that you would energize us. Would you energize us with your spirit so that we might be bold and, and not get stuck in ruts and not be self-pitying to the point where we undervalue the grace you've been given, that you've given to us rather. So Father, we, we ask for your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen. amen.